Welcome to the broadcast of Riverside Church in Princeton, North Carolina. Riverside Church preaching Christ and Him crucified. For more information, check out our website at www.riversidefwb.com. Grab your Bible, turn to 1 Samuel, Samuel chapter number 6. As you're reaching for your Bible, I do hope you have a copy of God's Holy Word. Today here at the river, we're beginning, or we're picking up again in 1 Samuel. As we go systematically, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and tonight will be no different. Remember, we choose to believe the Bible here at Riverside because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place and fulfilled a prophecy. It's divine, not human in origin. We here at Riverside believe that the Bible is our highest authority. And the Bible tells us to have uh, a faith, a faith in something or really a someone. And that's Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ bestows grace upon us. And all of that culminates for the glory of God. Amen. If you didn't notice, I just went through the five solas and I just put it out there plainly. But we're picking up tonight here in 1 Samuel chapter number 6. If you remember the last time we were together, we spoke about the Philistines and the ark, the ark of the Lord that was captured by the Philistines at the day of the prophecy that God spoke over to Eli through the prophet Gad and also through a vision through Samuel. He, boy, it wasn't the prophet Gad. It was, a, it was an unnamed prophet that came to Eli to tell him that God's judgment will befall, befall him and his family, that God will take his glory. And that's why his grandson will be named Ichabod because in her last few moments of life, whenever her heart fainted as she heard that her grandfather had died, her husband had died who was Phineas, and at that point she went into labor and she fainted and died. The nurse there named the child Ichabod at the end of chapter number 4. Ichabod meaning the glory of God has departed. Then we looked at chapter number 5 and how God dealt with the enemies of God and also the enemies of Israel. We see how God had took uh, his power and made it flex there in the Philistine territory. And Dagon, the temple of the, the god of the Philistines, remember the Philistine god Dagon was a, a merman. He was half man and half fish. This was their god and they put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple and God showing his power over the power of a dunghill deity. He sliced his head off and cut off his hands to show that he's powerful. And as they took the Ark of the Covenant and pushed it in and passed it around the five cities of the Philistines, the plague of the Lord afflicted the people of the Philistines and at this point now they're going to hold a big convention and chapter number six this is where we hear of the plan of getting rid of the power and the glory of God if you would look in first Samuel chapter number six in chapter number six, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. As we begin here, we see the number seven. And I'm not big on numerology, but in this chapter, we'll actually see it begin with the number seven and end with the number 70. We'll also see in the book of Revelation where there's a lot of number and symbolics, sim symbolism found in the book of Revelation. And we learned that the book of Revelation is also a combination of all the books of the Bible. 
Bible. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in that book, we see the number seven over many times. The number seven means perfection. Here, that God's plan is perfect without flaw. In your life, God has a plan. And you might say, well, I'm full of flaws. And there's all kinds, all kinds of mistakes and, and, and errors. But even in our errors, even in our flaws, God is still perfect. Here in seven months, here we see that the Ark of the Covenant is outside the, the people of Israel. They are without the glory of God. And then we know, we know that God is the Lord of hosts. We've already seen that in the book of Samuel as Samuel has penned that he is the Lord of the angel armies. That God is above all things. But these narrow-minded Israelites thought that the glory of God was only found at the ark. They were foolish and narrow to think that God could be compressed and balled up and put into a little ark. But see, many Christians are the same way. They believe that only God is found at church. They come to church on Sundays and maybe Wednesdays. They come into His presence, but they don't realize that His presence is in the car. His presence is in the living room. His presence is all around them. He's everywhere and all the time. No, we talk about Santa Claus. He sees you when you're sleeping and He sees when you're awake. We know that He is fixed and he's not real but there is one true God that the Bible tells us that all of creation is open before him like an old road map y'all remember those old road maps we kept in our, our dashes when we get lost we unfold it and we were lucky if we got it folded back but all of creation is unfolded before him there's nothing naked before him these foolish Israelites thought that the power and the glory of God was now gone out of Israel but God was still in control when it don't look like it how does that resonate with you, a Christian living in 2021, or what is it, 22 now? Where are we? When are we? I don't know. That God is still in control. That we don't compress him into a, a house with four walls with uh, beautiful stained glass windows. That God is everywhere. He's not limited to, to just these four walls. He's the God of all of the cosmos, all of the universe. But these foolish Israelites, they thought God's glory has departed. But the Philistines were dealing with the glory of God now. We saw how God deals with the enemies of God. How does God deal with the children of the Israelites, the children of God? In almost comparing chapter 5 and chapter 6 together, you would almost believe that God is more severe towards his own children. It might be that they should know better how to treat the presence of God. If you would, look in chapter number 6, verse 2. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send to its place. They're asking these diviners and wise men, what shall we do with the presence of God? It must go from us. We spoke about last week if the ark of the Lord and the Levites and the priests would show up at your house and knock on your door and they would want to bring in the ark of the covenant into your abode where you live, your habitation, would you turn them away? Because we saw the enemies of God, they would turn away the ark of the covenant. Don't bring that thing in here for it is holy. It's killing people. It's afflicting people because we are unholy 
and we spoke about that last week and we won't rerun that over again but they're wanting the presence of God out of their country so they bring all their wise men and their, their enchanters and their diviners. You, you must understand in our, in our, in our kingdom and the, the Lord, Lord of hosts, the kingdom of God, there are preachers and there's pastors and there's evangelists and there's Sunday school teachers but in the kingdom of darkness they are the same. There are those who preach and teach rebellion and wickedness and teach others to do the same. Here in the kingdom, the Philistines, they bring together these diviners. You know, they're spiritual. Have you ever met someone who said, well, I don't really necessarily believe the Bible, but I'm spiritual. I, I believe there's another world. There's an afterlife. Even demons believe that. You reach demon level if you believe that. But uh, we know there's one true God and he reigns forevermore and his name is Jesus. Amen, somebody. Amen. We see here that they bring together and they have a meeting. And, they, and, and these people are famous. They're known throughout the Old Testament. They pop up again in different places of the Bible. But these diviners and these enchanters, they show up in Isaiah chapter number 6, verse number 2, that God talks about these cursed diviners, these cursed men who are wicked and cause people to stumble. The kingdom of darkness, they come together and give advice to the Philistines on what they should do with the glory of God. Here's what they say do. They said in verse number 3, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it shall be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. First of all, in verse number 3, they're actually telling the Philistines, you're guilty before this God. He's afflicting you. A lot of times people will do anything to say, I'm not guilty. It's not my fault. Have you noticed, even starting in the book of Genesis, whenever Adam pushes Eve to the front and says, it's the woman you gave me. It's her fault. He pushes his bride before God and says, she's the one who did this. It's been our nature as humans to do the same. We always blame somebody else. We never put the guilt on ourselves. Even though the first Adam brought his bride before God and blamed her, the second Adam, who was Christ, pulls his bride behind him and says, I will take the blame. I will take the affliction. Punish me. Destroy me. To spare her. Amen. Somebody. That's good. Amen. That he spares his bride. The guilt here, the diviners say, we admit we're guilty. But now in our culture and time, people admit they're guilty all the time, but they don't do anything about it. They don't repent. Even Saul, who will come across to read King Saul later on in this very book, he goes away and he, he cries and weeps, but he doesn't change. Later on, King Ahab, he would hear Elijah preaching and teaching to him, and he would weep and put on uh, ashes and put on sackcloth, but he doesn't change. Later, we'll read about Judah, who, I mean, Judas who goes and cries whenever he turned Jesus in and knows he betrayed an innocent man, but he does not repent. A lot of times, people are guilty and they feel guilty. They don't admit it. And they don't do anything about it. Here, the diviners tell, tell the people of the Philistines that they are to give him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed. If you just admit you're guilty, you'll be healed. 
And they say, it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And then verse 4, and they said, what is the guilt offering that you, we shall return to him? And they answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice. According to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the plague, for the same plague was on all of you and your lords. Up till now, we have not heard anything about mice. But they show up here in a moment as they will present to God golden tumors and golden mice. If you don't know what a tumor is, it's a hunk of flesh that's infected that hangs on a person's body or grows out of a person's body. They're basically putting their afflictions before God and say, Here, we pay homage to you. We submit to you. We're guilty to you. You are God and we are not. But they don't change the way they live. For nowhere do we see that they convert and honor God. They don't want anything to do with God. They'd rather stay in the darkness with their blind, deaf, and done gods than serve the one true God. You might say, well, that's foolish. Well, sin is illogical and it's foolish. Have you ever met someone who's lost in sin and you say, can't you think clearly? No, we read in the Bible that their conscience and their mind is darkened by the prince of the power of this world. Sin is illogical. Sin will make you stupid. Sin is stupid. But then again, that's what we are. Here we see that they offer golden tumors and five golden mice. The mice probably, as we know, the black plague during the dark ages is what caused the plague. It wasn't necessarily the mice. It was necessarily the fleas on the mice that caused the plague that, went, that spread throughout Europe and killed many, many people. It, it, it might have been the mice that came and the fleas that jumped off the mice that bit them to grow the tumors. I, I'm not good in all that uh, biology and all that science. I can only go on what the Word said. They offered five mice and five tumors to appease God. But does it appease God? Well, let's continue and see how this thing unfolds. So we see five gold tumors and five gold mice according to the number of the lords of the Philistines for the same plague was on all of you and your lords. Notice there was no distinguishing mark. There was no tax bracket. There was no glass ceiling. Everyone was afflicted. This tells me no matter how big your house is or what you drive, all our graves are six feet deep. No U-Hauls are on the back of any of those hearses I've seen. I love doing funerals because you're there with an audience who are thinking about their mortality. Their loved one has passed on and they're thinking that one day they will die. And then we are faced with death. We're so separated from death that even when we go to the grocery store, our animals are already prepackaged. We don't have to get our hands bloody. We don't have to think about death. Someone dies, we call someone, they come and get them. And the next time we see them, they're pretty and all painted up, laying in a box. We're so removed from death. It's good to be reminded that we're flesh and bone and our days are numbered before God. Here, the kings and the rulers... To the peasant who cleans the outhouse were afflicted before God. In verse 5, so you must make images of your tumors and the images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps 
I really like verse 5. It almost makes you want to laugh as we read verse 5. Perhaps he will tighten his hand from off you and your if you got the ESV, I'm pretty sure it's in King James, your gods and your land. Notice the G there is lowercase. Oh, there are many gods. There's American gods, there's African-American gods, there's, there's Puerto Rican gods, there's Russian gods, there's, there's a lot of gods. Lowercase g. These gods rule and reign over humanity. Some people give up their lives for these gods, but there's only one true God who reigns, King of kings and Lord of lords. And even in our text, we see that these gods are lowercase g's. Uh, most commentaries like Matthew Henry tell us that these are dunghill deities. I love that phrase, the dunghill deities, that they're Lord of the uh, fertilizer. We'll call it that. Dunghill, dunghill deity. They're gods over the fertilizer and your gods and your land you would think in verse number five that they would admit that there is a one true God who's more powerful who extends his dominion who reigns over all and submit to that God but no they actually don't in verse number six why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and the Pharaohs harden their hearts after he had dealt severely with them, did he not send the people away and they departed? In their wisdom, they've heard the stories of the children of Israel in Egypt and how Pharaoh hardened his heart. And he's begging these pagans, don't, don't harden your heart against the Almighty God. You've heard me say that atheists say there is no God and they hate him. That actually don't sound like it goes together, but it does. The very breath that God graces upon them, they use that breath to blaspheme His holy name. He's God over the pagan as well as the Christian. He reigns over all. His mercy is found here in this chapter. Yes, He has afflicted them with plagues, mice. The mice ate up the crops, crops and the plagues and the tumors formed on their bodies. He took their prosperity, their health and wealth. And He's still God. However, they would not bend the knee. The best thing you would think would be for God to leave town. Put God on, a, on, a, on a, a cart and an ox. Have him drive out of town to get away from the people. You would think that would be the best thing. But no, we read in the book of Romans, Romans chapter number 1. If God were to turn you over to your sins... He turns the Philistines over. And even all their afflictions and all their heartache and hard times, they do not repent. Did you know people go through hard times a lot of the time and their hearts grow harder against God? They're angrier at God instead of repenting and believing that He is God and He reigns over all. What if Job, on his ash heap, as he was taking that pot shard, the broken pottery around him, as he scraped the boils... And the pus and the blood ran all out of his body as he tried to find relief from all the afflictions and the ashes that were on his head and the tears that wet his face. And his anger shook his fist at God. It happens. People do that all the time. But no, Job, even on the ash heap, was better than Solomon on his throne. For Solomon in all his glory... He had thousands of wives. He was, he was wealthy beyond measure. 
He was king over Israel in the golden age. He was full of wisdom. But we see Job in his ash heap said, I know my Redeemer lives. I know he's God and he reigns. And Solomon was blinded and led asunder by his women who were of foreign uh, ancestral descent and followed after other gods. Is it possible, church, that many times afflictions and hardships and many times valleys will bring us closer to God than any mountaintop experience? Is it possible on the bed of affliction, when your heart is broken, your body is broken, that you pray a little harder? Is it possible whenever your enemies surround you and they're licking their chops and they're about to devour you, that you cry a little louder and sing a little sweeter? Yes, preacher, you're right. That's right, preacher. I amen me. I know I'm preaching right. Here, the Philistines don't repent. Their hearts are hardened. In verse number 7, Now then take and prepare a new cart. This is their plan in verse 7. And two milk cows, on which they had never came a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, and take their calves away from them, and take the ark of the, of the Lord, and place it on the cart, and put a box at its side, the figures of the gold which are returning to him as a guilt offering, and send it off to go this way. And watch is what we look at verse number 9. You might say, so what? What's the deal with that? You get two cows, and you put them on a cart, taking the ark with it, you putting the offering on the side. Well, so what? This is a... A great test for we look at the cows. They're heifers. They're mother cows. And they're taking their calves away. And they're, they're pinning their cows. And, and, but on top of that, these heifers had never been yoked. These heifers had never wore any kind of yoke to plow a field or anything. They're just milk cows. So they would not know how to act when they put the yoke on. Naturally, they would go and wander until they found their calves. So anything else would be supernatural. Let's continue to see how the story unfolds. In verse number 8, Take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart. Put it in a box as inside the figures of the gold, which you're returning to him as a good offering. And send it off and let it go and watch. If it goes up the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who had done all this great harm. But if not... Then we shall know that it's not his hand that struck us. It happened by coincidence, is what they say. If these cows shake off the yoke or just go crazy and buck and kick the cart off, because naturally they're not used to that, and search out their calves as the mother instinct kicks in, then we'll know this was all coincidence. However, if it stays on the road and returns home, it's a different story. In verse 10, the men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home and put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of the tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. Now, I want you to take notice that these milk cows lowing as they went. God is God of all creation. God set the mountains in their place. He scoops the oceans in the palm of His hand as we read in Isaiah. He, he creates the storehouses of hell and rain and lightning and thunder. He is God. He's over 
God over your household, whether you bow the knee or not. He's God over all of creation, including these two cows. Their natural instinct is to low or cry out for their calves. And their natural instinct is to low as they're walking on this highway. They cry out to their child or their calves and say, Where are you, bro? They're moving along. Their natural instinct, but something compels them to stay on the highway. I bring to you that it's God. God. It was God who kept them on that highway to even override their natural affections. If you're here today and you have natural inclinations and natural uh, infections or affections in your heart that are sinful, let me assure you that God can override them. There's a phrase that goes around, you got to pray the gay away. You got to pray the gay. I know that might be offensive to somebody, but that's not even true. You don't pray. There's nothing you can do. It's only God who can help you. If you're inclined to be addicted, if you're inclined to be angry and bitter, if you're a mean drunk or you're just plain mean or you're highfalutin or you're a gossip, and that's your nature, that's your natural, you were just born that way. God overrides nature. Do you see what I'm saying? You must be born again. Preacher, how do you get must be born again over the text with the cows in it? That God reigns over the nature, the natural of us. That He is supernatural. He transcends all that. He's beyond our 12-step programs and giving up and trying a new leaf and turning the new leaf in our life, just trying to do better. He's supernatural. He will undergird you. He will strengthen you and override those affections and put a new nature in you, put a new spirit in you, take His finger and write His laws on your heart. He is God. Trust in Him. Oh, okay, back to the store. Here the cows are lowing and they're moving along. The two milk cows, they're probably crying out to their calves. But something compels them and brings them along the highway. For one, they've never been yoked. And naturally these animals who are now yoked is being brought along by the power of God for the Ark of the Covenant was there but still God is God over all of creation. Don't get so hung up on the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a symbol. Before the presence of God was not seen or or even felt as we look in the Old Testament until finally it was compelled and placed among the children of Israel as they wandered the wilderness and they had to have something to see and to be reminded that God is with them whether it's a cloud or the fire that burned or hovered above them by day or night. They knew that the presence of God God was there. When they were in Shiloh and the two cherubim faced each other, there was a flame that flickered there and that was the very presence of God in the tabernacle. And those days are fading now. In fact, now we don't need an ark in our time and culture. We have our Bible. It tells us about our God. And that flame that flickered between the two cherubim now flickers in our bones and in our heart. Amen, somebody. We know there's a God. But don't let me get off task here. As it went along in verse 12, the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the Lord of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Verse 13, now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat fields in the valley. And they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, and they rejoiced to see it. 
It's harvest time. Around chapter 6 verse 13 we see that now the, the city was out in the fields working. It's probably around June. Harvest time. Beth Shemesh means the city of the sunlight. We read in scripture... That God comes into a dark place. And it's just so uh, poetic sometimes when you learn the name of these places. That here, that God comes to the place of the rising sun where the dawn is rising once again over Israel. Where God's presence walks right back into Israel. His grace is sufficient. Isn't it good how God finds us in our darkest times? Uh, Let's be honest. He never leaves us. But sometimes it's just so dark. I heard one woman say, Preacher, I don't understand. I pray and I pray and I'm in the middle of my test and he doesn't answer. And like I, like I heard Miss Barbara Willoughby tell us that whenever a teacher administers a test to our classroom, she sits silent. But the tests don't last always. Sometimes it's time to turn your paper in. Many, many times you'll fail, but thank God for grace. Here we see that he, they rejoice to see as the ark comes closer. In verse 14, the cart, the cart came into the field of Joshua, Beth Shemesh, and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as burnt offering to the Lord. Well, what's so important of this is in chapter, chapter 6, verse 14, that these were two milk cows. The bulls are usually what is offered uh, during the, the time of a sacrifice, but the animals were there, and they were sacred unto the Lord, so they offered what they got. They didn't really have time to run home. It was time to rejoice right there, right then. Rejoice with what you got. Make an offering unto the Lord. So they slaughtered these milk cows there unto the Lord as burnt sacrifices, as an offering unto God. What does that mean to you as a believer in our time and age and our culture? Whatever you have, use that for His glory. What you have right where you are. Don't wait to get that BMW and say, God, if you give me that BMW, I'll drive around the neighborhood and pick up everybody and bring them to church. No, use your Volkswagen, your Hootie, ride around backfiring in the neighborhood. Pick up whoever you can to bring them to church. If you got a skateboard, pull up in their yard and say, jump on the back. We're going to church. Use what you got now. What's in your hands? Use it for God's glory. Don't wait to get the big house and the nice lawn. Tell them to come over to your shack out by the railroad track. Tell them to come to Bible study. Use what you got with your hands where you are for His glory. Because if you don't use what you have here when you get promoted, when you get better, you won't use it then because you don't want to scuff it up. You don't want nobody to put scratches on your new car. You don't want to load them kids up in the back seat of that nice car. It's got that new car smell. By the time they get out, it's going to smell like feet, socks, and, and, and bugs, and it's going to be sticky. You don't want to use what you got, what you, are, what you have now for God's glory. Preacher, what you mean? How's your ministry? Your ministry. I'm still pretty good. I have service here every Sunday and every Wednesday. And there's other things where I go and call people to visit them. My ministry is doing good. But how's your ministry? You don't outsource your worship. You don't outsource your ministry. I don't work for you. I work for God. But how's your ministry doing? Because you work for God. What? I never heard this. The Bible says that preachers are to equip the saints for ministry. How are you doing? How's your ministry? Well, my ministry, I don't know. 
I'm retired. I, I work on a job. I do this and that. But you can steal. Your pulpit might be, not be made of wood. It might be made of uh, a steering wheel. It might be a, a, a recliner where you pick up your phone and just call people and pray with them. It might be Bible study. It might be stopping by and dropping off flowers at somebody's house. It, it can be baking cookies in the kitchen to take them to the neighbors. And while you're there, you pray with them. How's your ministry? Whatever you have in your hands, go ahead and use it for God now. He certainly won't give you greater and bigger things if you won't use what he's given you already. Mm, preacher, come on, you're hurting me. I'm hurting me too. Be faithful with small things and he'll give you greater. Mm, that's good. Okay, we'll keep going. So they take the cows that they had there. If you were here Sunday, man, I, I was here. I don't know. Some of y'all act like you won't, but I was here Sunday. And we did Psalms and it was a sweet spirit in the house. I don't believe nobody won't cry, even the preacher. It was exceedingly good. He broke a lot of things. He broke hearts. He, he rooted a lot of people. He saved a lot of people. And he helped a lot of people. It's Sunday here. And I want to encourage you, that, that sermon is online. Go listen to it. It will help you and secure you. Uh, but I, I, the last thing I said, and I didn't record that, in many countries and many places of the world, C.S. Lewis, an author who was a Christian author, he spoke about a continent that had many fruit trees that grew there, but they weren't bearing any fruit. They wondered, why aren't why these trees bearing any fruit? And then it dawned on them after much study that in that, in that place, in that continent, there were not many storms, if any. It was always 70 degrees with a light breeze. So the trees had no reason for their roots to grow deep, to pull from the nutrients of the ground. They were shallow-rooted. What I'm telling you this is, if you're going through storms, and you're battling through, and you're broken, some valleys are so dark you can't see in front of you, and you're confused and clouded, and you cry out to God, and you're being battered in the storm, let your roots go deep into the bedrock of Christ. And when it does, you draw from His promises. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I, I, I by no means will cast you out. Those roots go deeper, Miss Connie. And you grow stronger and you bear greater fruit. Joy. Oh, I got joy. No matter if it is cancer. Oh, I got joy on the bed of a flea. I got joy being broke, busted, and disgusted. I got joy being prosperous. I'm content because I'm bearing fruit because my roots are deep. So the storms you face are not just storms to beat and batter you, to make you into the image of Christ. That's what they're for, to make you like Jesus. Because the wrath of God has already been poured out on Christ. There is no more wrath for you. So why do we suffer? Why do we go through hard times? It's to make you into the image of Christ. Michelangelo, who created the, the great sculpture of David, if you've ever seen it, it's a marvel sculpture of David. They asked him, how did you know? How, how did you do this image? And he spoke and he said, well, the image was already there. I just chipped away everything that was not the image of David. Christ is in you. And God is using sandpaper, afflictions, hardship, troubles to sand away anything that does not look like Christ. That impatience, He will sand it away. 
That bitterness, He will prune. That anger, He will chop away at it until you look like Christ. Mmm, that's good. Oh, okay, we'll get back to this. The cart came. They offered a burnt sacrifice. And uh, I forgot to mention that this town of Beth Shemesh is a city of the Levites. The, let us not forget the Levites were ordered and ordained by God to be workers in the temple. They're the only ones who were uh, required or uh, the only ones who were cleared to move the Ark of the Covenant. They're the only ones who were uh, to minister to the Ark of the Lord. And it just so happens that these, it's by coincidence, of course, y'all, it, it just so happens to show up in the city that was exactly 15 miles outside the city where it came from. It went straight there on the highway, not going to the left or the right uh, by coincidence. It just evolved. It all just popped into being. No, when uh, there's a God. We, we study history in school, and if you break that word history, it's his story. I know that sounds cheesy, but boy, it's true. It's his story. No matter what comes, what befalls us, whether a nation rises or a nation collapses from the inside out, God is sovereign and he reigns over all of natural disasters, over sunny days and cloudy days, over prosperity and over famine. God reigns. Mm. <laughs> okay. So we see in verse 15, the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifices to the Lord that day. It's been about seven months before anybody has sacrificed to the Lord. It's almost as if God came out of quarantine. They worshiped God. They honored God. And to elude what I talked, spoke about last Sunday, is He worthy? Yes, He's worthy. We spoke about in Psalm that, is He worthy of praise? Is He worth praising? Here they had not had the glory of God for seven months. And now they're worshiping. They grabbed what they could where they were and worshiped where they were. Here we see that God is worthy at Riverside. He's worthy. He's worthy of all praise and honor and glory. Homage, all credit goes to Him. Like I said Sunday, if He's a little God, don't bother with your praise. Don't inconvenience yourself. Don't lose your voice and don't crack your, crack your voice and, and don't scream at the top of your lungs. Don't weep whatsoever if He's not worthy. But if He's worthy, crack your alabaster box no matter how much it costs. Anoint his feet. Wipe up the tears of your worship with your hair. For he's worthy. If he brought you through and he brought you to it, give him credit and extol his holy name. Mention much of him and what he has done and how he's accomplished the goal of saving a sinner like me and you. Here we see in verse 16 that the five lords of the Philistines saw it and they returned to Ekron. But you know in verse 17 we don't see where the lords, when they go to Ekron, come in and preach and teach that the Lord of hosts is the one true God. The God of all creation. They asked for a sign and God gave them a sign. Did you know there's a lot of people and I used to be one of them. God, if you do this, I'll believe. 
God, if you do that, I'll believe. I've stopped at many stoplights and say, if this stoplight turns green, I'll believe in God. And then I go on down the road. And if this one stays green, I'll believe in God. And, and I would want to say, I want a bird to fly by that's a blue jay. And he want, he's going to have a mole right here. And, it, and he wants to have a limp. I, I need some signs to believe that God is God. And what he said is true because people are always looking for a sign when he's giving you all you need. All of creation is like a megaphone into your ears. There is a God. Your conscience bear witness against you that there is a God. And you're guilty before Him and you need a Savior. But we'll walk around like three blind minds. If I can only have a sign, and if we saw a sign, we still not believe. That's why many times we don't see the sign. Because that'll be a witness against us on Judgment Day. Did I not roll back the sky and wrote, here's your sign? Did I not tell you in thunder and the lightning and tell you? Did I whisper in your ear? That would be against you on judgment day. So we have enough. We have all of creation. We have his holy word. We have preachers and teachers and deacons. We have people who come along beside us and open the scriptures and explain to us what says the Lord. But you say, preacher, there's a lot in here I don't understand. I tell you what, it's not the stuff I don't understand that bothers me. It's the stuff I do understand that really bothers me. Amen, preacher. I know, I know. Y'all amen me too much. I might have to shut it down early, but I'm not. They don't go back and they don't acknowledge God as God. Even after the signs. Much like... Our education system where they teach the the theory of evolution. Notice they put the theory in front because they weren't really there when it took place. It's never been observed that the goo came to the zoo and created me and you. They have a theory. But I have an eyewitness account of what happened at creation. In the beginning, God. He was there. He, he, He wrote out a textbook for you to read. He's God. And if He created everything, and He owns everything, He reigns over everything. Whether you agree with that or not. But they return to Ekron and they don't acknowledge God. Much like we studied in the book of, Revela- uh, book of Romans. They deny God and suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The truth is in them. They have the truth. They know there is a God, but they suppress it. And they even enjoy other people suppressing it. They throw parades. They celebrate other people denying that there's a God. That's the unrighteousness of humanity. And if God leaves us in that state, we're ruined. If He leaves the Philistines in their state, they're ruined. They deserve it. I don't know why He decided to show grace to the Israelites who did not respect the glory of God, used it as a, a, a little trophy or used it as an accessory to their life. And the Philistines, he, he paraded through their cities and struck them with plagues and then comes back to Israel. I don't know why He comes back to Israel. But I know if God doesn't do something, everybody's ruined. The Philistines and the the Israelites will be destroyed and consumed by His power and His might because He's holy. But He showed mercy on the Israelites. I don't know why. I don't know why God showed mercy on me. I grew up in the same house as my brothers and my family. And he has shown great, exceedingly mercies upon me. I don't know why. It's not that I'm better good looking. I know I am. But it's not because I'm smarter. It's not because I come from a long pedigree of people. It's not because my last name is Phillips. I don't know why he showed grace to me. 
I should have been the very one he destroyed, Peter. It should have been me that would bust hell wide up. I don't know why he showed grace to me. I don't know why he came to Israel. And he returns there because that's just the nature of our God. He pursues his people. He comes back for them. Here he is rolling into town with two moo cows pulling the ark. Whenever they used him as a, a trinket, a good luck charm to win battles, much like we do in our society today. We do things in the name of God to... For God, really, I'm doing air quotes for those who are listening by radio or listening by podcast. We do it in the name of God, but it's really for us. We'll write that big check to donate, to put in the tithe, so the preacher will read, well, so-and-so gave this much money to this ministry, and we pat them on the back and say, rah, 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 he's a, rah, he's a jolly good fellow to get our glory. But we, we did it in the name of Jesus. But that's not, that's not true in our heart. Our righteousness is filthy rags. We do stuff for us to get ourselves noticed. We volunteer so everybody knows that we volunteered. We, we, we're, we, we shake hands with people, not just because we love people. We want everybody to know what we're wearing that day. Hey, I got this at Dollar Tree. And, well, if you bought a shirt from Dollar Tree. <laughs> but we do things for our glory and not His glory. And I don't know why God would show mercy on anybody because we all deserve hell. And if you're sitting here today and you're hearing my voice... He extends mercy towards you because preaching like this leads to repentance and that's the kindness of God as we read in Romans 1. The kindness of God leads to repentance. Will you say, not my works, Lord, but the work you've done and accomplished on my behalf. You saved me. You redeemed me. I don't bring any credit to your name. All I bring is debt and death and sin. And it's you who's dealt with my sin. It's you who saved me and redeemed me. And I give you all the glory. If he's worthy today, then give him praise. If he ain't, don't bother. And verse 17, these golden tumors that the Philistines return as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Akalon, and one for Gath, and one for Ekron. You might remember the word Gath. That's where we'll meet our formidable opponent later, an uncircumcised Philistines. Gath is the land of the giants. We saw where our enemy of David, who will be Gath, a Goliath of Gath. This was the land of giants. Even God brings giants to their knees. For they were afflicted just like everyone else. God is God and He reigns. That should cause you to sleep a lot better at night. That should cause your anxiety to be drowned in grace. Tomorrow you'll decide, will you worry and fret and let that reign over you? Or will God reign over you? We see in verse 14, the golden mice, according to the number of the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone by which they sat down on the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua Beth Shemesh. Now, we see how God treats the people of God in verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because of the Lord had struck the people with a great blood. Why would God strike them for just looking at the ark? No. <laughs> you must understand, they're in a town, the Levite town, and some of the people say, I wonder when 
God and all his power and glory was in the Philistine territory. I wonder if they opened up the ark and got the tablets out that had the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from the mountain. I wonder if the Philistines, when they took off the mercy seat off the top of the ark and reached in and took the rod that budded that Aaron carried. I wonder if... Whenever God's ark was in the, in the temple of Dagon, if the priests in all their power would reach in and take out the vase that was filled with the manna that fed the children of Israel in the wilderness. So their concern might have been warranted, but they must remember it's the ark of the Lord that God is able to handle God things. Uh, let me explain and elaborate. There's a lot of times believers who are God-fearing Christians and they love God, but they think God needs a little bit of help. They think that God needs to, he needs backup, he needs a wingman, he needs, he needs somebody to come in along beside him to finish the job. We call these people manipulators. We call these people guilt trippers. We call these people puppet masters. Let me assure you, God is God. What you should do is pray about that thing and leave it in His hands. He's able to defend His holy name. He's able to persuade. He's able to lift up and tear down. He don't need mamas putting guilt trips on their children. You need to come to church. It would do my heart so good. I know about that mama guilt. Don't say, don't say nothing to my mama about it. She's probably listening. Mama, I love you. But I know about guilt trip. I know about mama's guilt trip. Mama's got that power of their children. But daddies do too. Either by force or by guilt or wanting to please their, their daddies. Children will do things. But let's not flex it in that way. Pray about that thing. God, you're able to help them. God, you be God in God things. And I'll serve you in any way I can. You don't need me, you don't need me to manipulate anything. I don't, I don't need to politic anything. I don't need to bring anything before the congregation at the business meeting to persuade them to do this in that way. I pray about that thing and God will move the hearts of the people. I don't need to politic. I don't need to be shaking hands and making deals in the back room. I pray about it and ask God to move. Let God be God. Somebody just needed to hear that. You're in a situation that you think, well, if I did this and I can do that, I can scratch their back and they can scratch mine. I can, I can work this and I can work that. Don't presume that God needs any help being God. Don't pull any strings here or there. If you do, it's because you don't believe in the power of prayer and you don't believe God is able. Let me challenge you today to pray about it and leave it at His feet. Even Jesus told of a parable of a, man, a woman who came to an unjust judge in her city and was beating on the door and begging for justice. And the judge feared not God nor man. But he was so aggravated by this woman who wanted justice, he gives her justice. Partition God. And let me assure you, he's not an unjust God. He's not a God too busy. He is a God who has an affection for his children. And when we plead with him, he hears us and he will answer us in our time of need. Cry out to him, God, here's my flight. Here's my situation. Here's what's going on. I don't want to manipulate anything, Lord. I put it in your hands. You reign forever. You're all powerful and almighty. No one will slap your hand away. No one will discipline you. No one will ask what you're doing. You are God and I cry out to you for supplication, for strength, for encouragement, to 
remove this obstacle, to take that mountain and move it out of the way. Lord, I cry unto you. What if we prayed like that? Our Wednesday nights would explode. Our church attendance for Sunday will be here because people believe in prayer. We would simply invite people to church and not guilt them to come. We would pray for them before we even ask and ask God to capture their heart. What if we prayed like that? Why don't we pray like that? Let God be God. And believe that He reigns and He's powerful and He's mighty and He's still established. Many people believe that God has pawned His throne. Hell got an air condition and all the pavements being pulled up into heaven to pay the mortgage. They believe there's no power in the gospel no more. There's no reason to pray that God has grown old and mute. He's walking around with a walker with a hearing aid with dead batteries. He's blind. But our God reigns. Our God is alive. The gospel is still true and it saves sinners. Don't peer into the ark and wonder is there still power. For he flexed here in this Beth Shemesh and he struck down 70 of them. Notice we saw the seven at the beginning when his glory comes back into town. And now we see his glory here as he deviates punishment for those who assumed upon his power and took him for granted. Let us not take him for granted, Riverside. Let us not help God along the way. Yes, we all have elderly in our congregation or in our family. Those we're concerned about. We come along beside them. Come on, me, Ma. Let me help you to the car. Let me steady your hand and keep you standing upright. We don't need to prop up our God. He's not dagging from the previous chapter. He reigns forevermore. He's God. He is strong, immutable, un un uncontested. There will no, be no re-elections. There will not be a new election cycle where we bring in a new God. He's the Ancient of Days. He's the Lord of hosts. What that means is that He's God and general over all the angel armies. Not that He needs an army. He's God all by Himself. And if you petition Him, He hears you. If you have access to the throne room, why do you waste your time in the dungeon crying to the other prisoners and complaining when you can go into the Holy of Holies and cry out to God personally? They peered into the ark and God struck 70 men. The 70 here, we saw the 7 at the beginning. I told you perfection is found in the number 7 as we look in the book of Revelation. And here in the book, almost like two bookends, the 7s, is perfection. His wrath towards them is perfect wrath. We all say that God is love. Yeah, we know God is love. But He's holy, holy, holy according to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. The seraphim fly around His throne and thunder to each other. He is holy. So if God is love, He's a holy love. If He's righteous, it's a holy righteousness. These things are not put it against each other. He's holy in His judgments. He's holy in His commandments. He's holy in His crying out to His people. God is holy. And that's the trouble. God is holy. A couple of years ago, there was this preacher named Rob Bell who hijacked the phrase, Love wins. 
And they plastered it on churches. And these are the churches that preach that homosexuality is okay. LGBTQ is okay. We love them anyway. And everything is love. As God is love, we can love everybody. And everybody can love everybody. And then, you know, the Sodom and Gomorrah thing to happen. God did that because He's holy. And we are not. Loving somebody in the middle of their sins, enabling them in their sin, that's not love. That's hate, actually. Preaching God is holy in His love means that we are to be holy in the way we love. Holy in our worship. That our worship should not be vain and arrogant about us. The moment someone stands or preaches or comes and sings in our pulpit or on our stage and they make it about them and they soak it up and the spotlight hits them and we adore them and worship them, we vainly worship something other than God. We should not distract from His holiness and His righteousness and His, His supreme eminence, His superiority, His glory. We should make it about Him. God strikes down 70 of them in His perfection. He shows that He's perfect in His judgments. He's perfect in His judgment. When the sinner busts hell wide open, it's fair. There's no one in hell saying, I'm here by mistake. I don't know how I even got here. This ain't fair. God slighted me. He, he's done me wrong. God will be a debtor to no one. Oh, but the conversation will be different in heaven. There's a mistake. I can't believe I'm even here. How did I get here? Only because of Christ. That'll be me. Y'all hear the loud one over in the corner. How in the world am I here? Praise the Lord. I don't even know. Thank you, Jesus. Saw somebody online today say, if you got to go to heaven for one hour, who's the first person you see? Who would you want to see? And people say, I want to see my mama, my daddy, my cousin. Show me Jesus. Just show me Jesus. And y'all can wait. Show me Jesus. Here, the 70 is a symbol of his perfection and his judgment. That's the problem. We don't want perfection. You hear that phrase, nobody's perfect. That's what we say when we mess up. We always say that. I say it all the time to my wife. Nobody's perfect. There was only one that was perfect. We killed him because he was perfect. We didn't like that. He was perfect in all his ways. His meditations of his heart, his prayer life, and the way he carried himself, his private and his public life were perfect, without flaw. No one can bring any sin and charge against him. So he had to die. He's got to go. Have you ever been accused of being a holy roller? Man, we don't want you to come to the party because you're too holy. That's a compliment. And you might take offense to it. It's because we're all stained and fallen. But if you're like Jesus, you should say, well, thank you. All right. Jesus is perfect in all His ways. And here are the 70 who were killed and struck with a great blow shows that God is perfect in all His decisions. From His mercy, perfect mercy. Oh, that is wonderful. Perfect mercy. Perfect justice. And they cried out and mourned. In verse 20 and 21, we're going to finish up with this. And 20, then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? In verse 20, the, the children of God are turning God out just like the Philistines did. You got to go. You can't keep that ark here. People's dying. I ask you, is God's holiness something that's rejected by you? Naturally, yeah. 
Yeah, we don't want to be holy all the time. We got to have some fun. Let your hair down. Got to sow your, your wild oats. I think that's how they say it. I don't know. Sherry tells me it's not. That's not how you say it, but I don't know. You got to go have fun. You got to just, you've earned a little bit of sin this weekend. You've been good all week. You ain't cussed at all. You might as well go do that, do this, say that, go there, do this. You've earned a little bit of fun. Let your hair down. You turn out the holiness of God because He's holy. And by nature, we're not. Do you see the bridge? Do you see the gap that's not there? A huge gulf between us and God. We need a mediator. We need an in-between. Someone who can, who can understand our infirmities. Someone who can understand our fleshly desires. Someone who's fleshly. Someone who's a man. And someone who understands God's holiness and His righteousness and His perfection. Someone who's above all things, who's supreme. Someone who can come and bring the two together. A mediator who understands both sides. And it's not Muhammad God. It's not Buddha. It's not Allah. It's not your favorite actor. It's not even your favorite preacher. It's Jesus. Fully God and fully man. He mediates between you and him and him and you. <laughs> oh, I love it. He mediates the huge gap. Here they're turning out the glory of God because of his holiness. There's no one here perfect. No one without sin. There's no one here who floated in here this afternoon on a cloud with doves and rainbows bursting out from behind you. We're fallen sinners and we need grace and we only find that in Jesus. Here they turn out the glory of God because He has to go out from us. I want you to know this, church. When they crucified Jesus, where did they crucify Him? Outside the city. He had to get out of here. He's too holy. In verse 21, so they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kis-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. Between chapter 6, verse 21, and chapter 7, verse 1, 20 years will take place. The ark of the covenant will stay there at Kirith-Jerim for 20 years. For 20 years, I, I doubt it would actually gather dust as they had Eleazar go and clean it and minister to the Lord there. But from this point on, it fades into the background until later, until David takes the throne. Notice Saul doesn't come up and make sure that the, the ark of the Lord is put in its proper place. But the ark will fade into the background. For it's a holy thing. It's a holy relic. I wonder now, as we don't have any relics, we don't have anything that symbolizes that holy presence of God, only the thing now that's the holy relic is you. Uh, are you a holy ark? Does His tablets of His law reside in your heart? Do you feast on the manna that is the Word of God and gives you strength for each new day? Are you brooding forth like that blooded staff of Aaron from a dead thing a new life brings forth out of your humanity? God breathes into you a new creature with new features. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. You're brand new, born again from death. Are you His presence? Are you His glory? Are you His strength? No preacher, I've failed. 1 John chapter number 2. When you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. If you're not able to carry that burden of carrying His glory, no worries. Your high priest is your advocate who carries you. Oh, that's good. He prays for me when I don't feel like praying. 
He seeks me out when I don't want to be found. He heals me when I afflict myself. He holds me when I'm just wild and trying to twist out of his grip and he does not lose a soul. He by no means will cast me out. He won't give up on me when people do. He heals me when I hurt me. That's my Jesus. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you tonight as we studied about the presence of the Most High God as it was holy. And that's not something we're inclined to be drawn to. For Lord, we are unholy. And Lord, I pray tonight that...